Epistle lesson is found in Revelation chapter 5. We're reading verses 1 through 14 today, but we're also taking a broader footprint of chapter 4 uh, together with this chapter in 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we confess that it is strange. Visions and scenes that we're not accustomed to. And so in dependence and from our weakness, we look to you. Guide us into all truth today in accord with your promise. And speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several weeks ago, we began this series, the book of Revelation, with several qualifications. Up to this point, everything has been fairly easy to grasp. We began with the vision of the exalted, risen Jesus speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They were the historical churches, and through these historical churches, Jesus was addressing all the churches of the Roman Empire, and he's even addressing us today. But it is as we now break into chapters 4 and 5 for the remainder of the book that we enter into the real rigorous and steep ascent that is involved in understanding this complicated book of Revelation. Commentators are all over the place. You can expect about anything when you pick one up. Popular novels litter the landscape and only further complicate matters. Perhaps you've read one of those. 
And please remember Chesterton's helpful line, and though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his commentators. Remember that this letter also doesn't have to be complicated. There are challenging things about it, but this letter is spoken by God to the church. And it's not just to the church then and there, it's to the church here and now, the seven churches standing in for the fullness and the completeness of the church. And so throughout time, this letter relates to us. And it has a very simple but profound pastoral message. It is designed to encourage us in the middle of the circumstances and the situations in which we find ourselves in a fallen world. As a fifth grader at A.G. Cox Middle School, I was introduced to the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. It was fascinating for me to enter into the world of Narnia through the wardrobe, as perhaps it was for you if you read those. And what was so fascinating was the idea, the concept, that there was a different world, but yet a world that was somehow related to this world that was through the wardrobe. How exactly did that work? Wonderful fiction. And Lewis was writing fiction, but it opens for us a very important question. Because you see, as Christians, we actually believe something similar. That there is a different world that is somehow related to this world, a different dimension of this reality. Two different but yet related worlds that we call heaven and earth. And we have to ask, how exactly does that work? In Revelation 4, John is swept up into this heavenly reality where he, in a vision, is seeing the throne room of God. We've seen over the past weeks that John doesn't escape into heaven in order to, to though, forget about the earth. He's not drawn away because the earth is insignificant or unimportant. John is taken out of the world in order to see the world differently to see the world from a heavenly perspective. He's granted to peek behind the scenes of world history, to see a heavenly reality, the reality behind all realities. And the here and now, the earth as it is, looks quite different from this perspective. And so the most critical thing for us to ask as John enters into this vision in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, is what are we to glean from it? What is the significance for us today, and what is the message that the church is to receive? Three things that we'll consider and focus on this morning from the vision. First, through the vision, we encounter God. Yes, we encounter the living and true God. Eternal and triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, full of majesty, full of power, full of all authority. We meet him here. So you begin in chapter 4. You see that he is envisioned as one seated on a throne in verse 2. 
This phrase, seated on the throne, is then repeated four times in these chapters. And this happens in the Bible when something is being emphasized, that God is seated on a throne, ruling over all, sovereign and supreme in all authority. This is the message. There are no rivals for him. As the vision proceeds, there are four rather bizarre creatures that surround the throne. And they're declaring God's praise. In verse 8, they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They are announcing that God is eternal and true, that he's faithful and keeps every one of his promise. And what he began in the creation of the world, he will complete in the world's redemption. The elders then surround the throne as well with these four living creatures, and they take off their crowns. They place them before the throne, and they sing their own song and make their own declaration in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy. He is the creator. He deserves honor and blessing. This is the encounter that begins in chapter 4, but it doesn't end here. The relationship between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is important to observe. It is like we began with a wide-angle lens in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, the camera zooms, and it's into a deeper perspective and understanding of this heavenly throne room. In chapter 5, verse 6, you see the results of zooming in. And this is what it reads. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so here is the lamb, one who as though slain, standing there in the midst of the throne and the Spirit of God. And so here we have the triune God in all of his glory as the vision grows more precise. And it is in all of this important to note that John doesn't dwell on the visible form of the one who is on the throne. Rather, he protects the unknowable transcendence of God in the vision, and he focuses upon two things. He focuses upon the throne itself, and then he particularly focuses on what is going around on in the throne. What does the throne room look like? And it's really important for us to consider what unfolds. In verses 9 and 10, we see that those strange four creatures and the elders join together in a new song around this throne. And they're offering praise to Jesus, the one who's worthy to open the scroll. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then we find the circle expands. It expands beyond these creatures and the elders. And in verse 11, it encompasses myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. 
And they with a loud voice proclaim, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And yet it's not finished. The expansion continues in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The praise that God the Father receives, the Son, the Lamb, also receives here. And this is the point that we when we encounter God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship Him. All the, in the reality of heaven, there in this plane, are responding to the true knowledge of God and the revelation of God. And they don't do so in the abstract, but rather they bow down in reverence and awe. And friends, as we receive knowledge from God, as he reveals himself to us in his word, this is the only and proper response to that knowledge. It is to bow ourselves in worship, to recognize that he has the right, he has the glory, and he receives all honor. And so we encounter this living God in these visions. Second, through the vision, we also gained a heightened perception of reality. The events of history, the things that go on in this world, are part of reality. They are real, they are significant, and they are meaningful. In the letters to the seven churches, we see that Jesus has an intimate understanding of the circumstances of the churches. He knew what they had done, and he commended them for it. He knew where they were falling short, and he critiqued them for it. He knew their successes and their failures. He knew their context and their culture. He knew their gains and their losses. He understood their circumstances and their situations. He understood that Roman imperial power set the context for the life of the early church. And that in Rome, political power was substantiated by religious worship. Jesus understood the cultural situation that the church was enduring in that moment. It was easy for these early Christians to think that the only thing that mattered in their world was the power and the authority of Rome. However, this is where the vision steps in and offers something so radically different for their world and also for ours. You see, as Christians, we don't believe that the affairs of this world, the events of this world, are a comprehensive depiction of reality. They can never provide a comprehensive picture when we simply focus upon the earth. It's not the whole story. It's something like talking to my two sons when they were little, when they were fighting over something. I knew I was only receiving one perspective from both of them as I desperately searched for the truth. And friends, when we focus only upon the events of the earth, 
We will never have a comprehensive understanding of what is going on in God's world. We tend to think of heaven as a distant place, somewhere far off out there. The Gentile world that John inhabited, heaven was just such a far off place. It was something like a Caribbean island in the sky. But this is not the biblical conception at all. Heaven refers not so much to a different distant place, but to a different plane. It's a dimension of created reality. And where God dwells, it's overlapping and interlocking with the physical world that we inhabit. It is the control room of the cosmos. And the biblical conviction is that what is true in heaven will become true upon the earth. And so John gets caught up into heaven where he has a vision of ultimate reality. It is the reality behind all earthly realities. And what does he see? He sees God upon his throne. He sees Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who's not subject to elections, who doesn't lose, who has won the holy war, who's enthroned in victory. This is what John sees. And it is this vision that provided the church then and there with a different perspective on earthly events. And it is this vision that provides the church here and now with a different perspective on earthly events. Psychologists are fond of running a test on human beings to demonstrate exactly how this perspective of knowledge works. Oftentimes an image will be flashed in front of you. One of the most famous ones is an image that can be understood to be a duck or a rabbit. And so you're provided the opportunity to answer what do you see? And what you see all depends on where you sit and how you look at this object. And friends, that's what's true for us as well. As we look at worldly events, as we look at the affairs of earth, it depends on which vantage point we look at. Do we look at it simply from the provincial perspective of earth, that small-minded perspective, or can we gain heavenly perspective? Can we gain perspective from the throne room of God in which we look at the events of earth and we see it underneath the reign of God and the rule of God? And friends, this is what is desperately needed. This is the vision that's spoken to the chaotic realities of the church in the first century. And it is the vision that can speak today into chaotic realities. We live in a time of cultural upheaval and cultural change. There's political turmoil. There's economic uncertainty. There's social unrest. And in that moment, what exactly do you need? It's not news cycles. It's not more information. What we desperately need and why we are taking the time to read the book of Revelation is what we need is this vision of God upon his throne. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit ruling over all of history. We need to be invited into that vision and to dig deep into it, into these truths. Otherwise, we'll be left 
to earthly events to wring our hands in worry and anxiousness. We need to be caught up into the reality behind all realities. And this is what the vision of John offers to us, is to peek behind the scenes of history and to see God sitting upon his throne, ruling over all. It is incumbent upon us, essential for us, to dig deep in our beliefs about the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. Third, through this vision, we also gain a deeper understanding of God's plan. One question that arises from this vision of God sitting upon his throne is a simple one, but incisive. If God is upon his throne, then why is the world so bad? Why are things the way they are? And these visions are designed to answer that question. If heavenly realities will become true on the earth, how exactly will that happen? We live in a world that's full of sin and death, decay and injustice, unrighteousness. How is God going to bring that heavenly reality to bear on the earthly sphere? Chapter 5 gives the answer. It begins with a scroll being held by God in his right hand. And there's a question that's asked. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No one was qualified. No one could proceed to the throne and take that scroll. But Jesus walks forward and takes the scroll. He receives praise for it because he was the one who was uniquely qualified, without stain and without sin the righteous one. And here's what is important. As we'll see in future chapters, this scroll, it unfolds the secret purpose of God to bring about his rule over the earth, how God's righteousness will come to dwell in the world. And seven times in the book of Revelation, several times here in chapter 5, we're told of that universal reign, that people from every tribe and language and people and nation will surround the throne of God. And the scroll reveals how God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, will fully implement that plan. That yes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that lion who conquered was a lamb who was slain. And that this is the secret wisdom of God to overcome the world's injustice and the world's evil and the world's sin by going underneath it, by becoming a victim of it in order to defeat it. That is one of the many mysteries of the scroll that Jesus takes up, that the suffering lamb is the conquering hero. Only the lamb can open and reveal that content because he is the victorious one. He is the righteous one. This is the plan of God, the secret hidden for ages, but yet that has been manifested in Jesus to overcome the world's evil and injustice, its death and its decay, in order that it might be renewed. The creator of all things, who we find in chapter 4, in chapter 5, we learn that he is the redeemer of all things. 
that he will not forsake the works of his hands, that he will not leave them to their own, that he intends to rescue them through this lamb who was slain in order that all things might be reconciled to him. And the vision takes us into the depth of God's plan as we see it unfold around Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing in our world. And friends, in our time, in our context, in our circumstances, this is what we need. We need to dig deep and pull down all the value and meaning of this heavenly vision of the Apostle John, where he has an encounter with the living God, where he sees his majesty, and he sees him upon his throne, and he allows that throne to alter his perception of earthly events, that rather than crumbling underneath all the weight of the things going on in his world, that he could rise to new purpose and see God's hand behind it all, that God is upon his throne, that he's not lost. And friends, it's then understanding the depth of God's plan. This is what we're invited into through these visions. Dig deep. Bring it into application inside our own world. And join in the great doxological praise that explodes on the scene as the Lamb takes up the scroll and begins to open the seals. That is the reality of heaven today, and it's the reality that you are invited into right now as we gather for worship, is to celebrate his great victory in advance of its final installment. And so let's ask God's help for that. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for what seem to be strange visions, yet visions that offer to change our lives and our world in the present, that we gain different perspective and renewed understanding of the events of earthly things. And God, we ask that you would grant us heavenly perspective, that we would see you upon your throne, that we would see the Lamb ruling over all things, the one who conquered through death and resurrection. And may you grant us this renewed confidence as we look to him and look to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.